Uh, my name is A.J. Rinaldi. I'm one of the pastors on staff, for those of you who do not know me. Uh, for those of you who do, thank you for coming anyway. And uh, for those of you who do know me, this, this topic of It Takes Work, uh, this series is a good one. It's near and dear to my heart. Uh, many of you know that my background is varied. I have experience in the military and in healthcare business. Uh, I did quite a few things before uh, entering ministry. But what you may not know is one of those things, uh, when I was younger, I actually thought I might go to work for a bank. Uh, I became a teller, uh, but I got fired on my very first day. Well, a woman asked me to check her balance, so I pushed her over. Uh, so, so then I went to work at a calendar factory. I got fired from that job too, but all I did was take a day off. Well, I thought I'd like to work in a factory that produces countertops, you know, kitchen counters, things like that, but everything they do there is counterproductive. On the other hand, cleaning mirrors is a job I could really see myself doing. <laughs> I tried being an electrician, but people were shocked that when they found out how bad I was at it. <laughs> so I started making arrows. You know, uh, I finished one, I shot it to the other side of a river. I, admittedly, I wasn't very productive, but at least I got my point across. <laughs> Finally, I think I found my true strength is in my motivational skills. Everyone always says they have to work twice as hard when I'm around. So, yes, it's not Sunday, as my dear friend Laura said the other day. It's pun day. So I hope we have some fun with that. Okay, I'm done. Uh, we are all called to produce in some way. Life is about doing, giving, providing, constructing, maintaining. As Pastor Wayne spoke about last week, we are to flourish not waste away in idle contemplation or frivolous play. But don't misunderstand me. Contemplation and play are important. They're important for us to be mentally, physically, and spiritually healthy. And some may actually find as they contemplate and play that they're able to also produce. Their vocation necessitates it. See, the fulfillment of our calling is found in action resulting in substance. Producing not reducing. Our call is to be a producer, not a reducer. There is a classic story that Disney made as one of their silly symphonies. And uh, if you're not familiar with the silly symphonies, I highly recommend just go on YouTube and, and search silly symphonies. They're fantastic. It's some of the early Disney works. There was one called The Grasshopper and the Ants. Some of you may be familiar with this. I'm sure many of you have seen it, or at least heard the tale. It's a timeless story illustrating some great points that we're actually going to cover this morning. I wish we had time to watch the whole thing, but we don't. So I just want to share some highlights with you. In this first clip that I'm going to play, you'll see the grasshopper's attitude toward work and provision. It's pretty clear how he views his responsibility as a producer. Enjoy. Listen, the good book says the Lord provides. There's food on every tree. I see no reason to worry and work. No, sir, not me. Oh, the world owes us a living. Oh, the world owes us a living. <laughs> you should soil your Sunday pants <laughs> like those other foolish ants. Come on, let's play and sing and dance. Yeah, the world owes us a living. What an interesting lyric, right? Does that sound familiar? 
Many people in society today have that same mentality. Well, as the story progresses, we see a harsh winter set in. And the ants, being diligent, hard workers, are prepared well with lots of food and other provisions, while the grasshopper finds himself out in the cold. Eventually, he collapses at the door of the ant colony's giant home, where, taking pity on him, they bring him inside. And that's where we will pick up the story here again. I think that's a great picture of how everyone is called to contribute, to produce. While the grasshopper did not do the exact same work that the ants did, it was revealed that his gift of music was a form of producing. It was his calling. He just wasn't aware that he could use it to contribute to the good of others. When we think of one passage from Scripture that encapsulates the higher biblical idea of work, I think most of us would immediately go to Colossians 3.23. I know that I do. And verses 23 through 25 say this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In all things we are called to excellence, called to be producers, not reducers. It's clear that God has created us with intentionality, that we would use our gifts and talents for the benefit of others. The word vocation itself is actually derivative of the Latin words vocare, which means a calling or to be called, and vocatio, which is a summons. Our very word for work means a calling. For us, this must be understood as a calling from God. He intends for us to be producers. And this transcends what we think of when we think of job or occupation or employment. When we consider the theology of work, I believe we must consider carefully how we are fulfilling our calling, whatever that may be. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. so eloquently and accurately stated, he said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as a Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. 
Now, you might chuckle or scoff at that example, but within the context of Colossians 3.23, Paul was addressing every type of occupation. Slaves, servants, soldiers, masters, it did not matter. This was a universal decree to work at your vocation as if you were doing it for the glory of God. Believe me, it's not easy, I know. This chart here probably sums up most of our days fairly well. The cycle of productivity. You got that short bout of incredible productivity. Might happen first thing in the morning, but for most of us, it probably doesn't. It probably starts here. Then we get about 10 minutes worth, work of work worth of work done, and you stare at your computer for a little bit. Check your emails. Oh, i got to make a list. Uh, and there's the black hole. Come on, don't deny it. And then, of course, you're like, oh, man, i got to get, I, I can't think of what to do next. Well, you got to get up and get a cup of coffee. And then as soon as you sit back down, wham, I'm going to get some more work done. That's pretty, pretty spot on, don't you think? I'm sure for most of us anyway. However, however, maybe some do go to extremes to increase their productivity so there aren't quite so many distractions. So, so check out what's going on here, right? You got your Pringles. You got your beer in the sink with, in water that's probably melted ice. Uh, you got your coffee maker over here. Uh, of course, you got your toilet, you know, but, but while it works as an illustration for creating the ideal setting to maintain a productive workday, I'm pretty sure this is probably for a gamer, <laughs> you know, who's, who's doing World of Warcraft or something. <laughs> so, so how do we gauge whether we are producing or reducing? In what ways can we examine our work and, and make adjustments where necessary? I think we can look at three areas. And these are distinct. While they may affect one another, and they certainly do, the idea is not, uh, is not that it's in, in order or that one leads to another, although it may. But these are three characteristics of our work that can help us measure whether we're producing or reducing in the workplace. First, what motivates us to pursue our vocation? How do we act when we work? And what results do we achieve? Our motivation, our action, in our results. First, what motivates us? On a deeper level, are we seeking to provide opportunities or resources for others or wealth that we may hoard it? What moves us to work, to put effort into something? Are we concerned only about financial gain? Listen carefully. Incidentally, there's nothing wrong with financial gain. So I don't want anybody misunderstanding and going out of here saying, yeah, AJ said we shouldn't have financial gain. There's nothing wrong with that. But do we hope to also bless others? Are we motivated by a balance? Professor of Christian ethics, philosopher, and theologian Scott Ray wrote a book with fellow ethicist and writer Austin Hill called The Virtues of Capitalism. In it, they're addressing the motivation for entrepreneurship and business leadership in general, and here they make an excellent point. The most effective way to turn around poverty, economic distress, and injustice is by expanding opportunity for people to develop and deploy their God-given productive potential in communities of exchange. Of course, this idea is not original or unique to 21st century business. Jesus shared a parable making much the same point, and Solomon addresses this issue frequently throughout Proverbs, much of which we will examine today. So in Luke chapter 12, 
is Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He then told them a parable. The land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, celebrate. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded back from you. But who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich toward God. And no doubt Jesus also had learned as a young person some of these same principles from Solomon. Proverbs 11 says one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. So on the negative side, we see the example of the hoarder. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. People curse the one who hoards grain. Notice their hoarding leads to poverty and an unfavorable view in society. Now these guys probably don't look very familiar to most of you, maybe to a few of you. These are the characters Randall and Mortimer Duke from the 80s movie called Trading Places. Anybody ever seen that movie in here? That's one. Well, these two embody greed. They manipulate the lives of both the privileged and the poor for sport. And in the end, they actually lose it all as a result of their blind avarice. Now, in a very creative twist, these same characters in this bottom picture, the same characters show up in another movie five years later called Coming to America. Any of you seen that one as well? That's also an 80s film. Now, these guys this time, they're bums. They're homeless and on the streets as a result of what occurred in the, in the previous movie. So when the main character of Coming to America gives them a large sum of money, you can see their wheels turning about how they can get back on top. And one of the brothers looks through there and he exclaims, We're back signifying that nothing has changed about their motivation despite all they have experienced. Now, on the positive side, one person gives freely, it gains even more. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. They pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. Now, disclaimer, like you heard last week from Wayne, this is not the prosperity gospel. This has nothing to do with the fact that if you give, you will get rich as you'll see on the, in this illustration, which I think most of you will be familiar with. This is a great example of someone with the motivation to benefit others, even if he didn't quite realize that was what motivated him. And if you don't know who this guy is, I'm very sorry for you. Despite what he considered to be failures time and again, even after not accomplishing his early dreams, of which even those were motivated by a desire to produce for the good of others and not for personal gain. George Bailey is characteristic of someone whose vocation improves the quality of life for others, especially some for whom there would be no other hope. On the other hand, have you ever known anyone who was consistently obsessed with get-rich-quick schemes, most of which turn out very badly in the end? 
The most common is the Ponzi scheme. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this concept, where money is collected and distributed in a cycle of invest and reinvest without any substantial thing really to invest in. It should be no surprise that this is addressed in Proverbs as well. Proverbs 28, the one who works his land will be satisfied with food, but whoever chases daydreams will have his fill of poverty. A faithful person will have an abundance of blessings, but the one who hastens to gain riches will not go unpunished. The examples of this in our culture are so numerous, it could fill hours of Netflix documentaries. And in fact, it does. You got your Enron, the Polka King. Anybody see the Polka King besides me? Very interesting story. Um, Bernie Madoff, the savings and loan scandal. The list goes on and on. In the 80s, even before we had the internet and social media, we had a pop culture phenomenon blow up. It was consuming all the news and the magazines. It presented a challenge for evangelicalism in, in particular, which I'm not sure we've actually ever recovered from. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker had a television ministry show titled PTL, or Praise the Lord. They raised millions of dollars, keeping most of it for themselves to support their incredibly lavish lifestyle. They even built a Christian theme park called Heritage USA for which they oversold timeshares. The site now sits abandoned and dilapidated. It all came crashing down in 1987. And Jim Baker himself was sentenced to 45 years in prison for fraud. Now, he ended up actually only serving four years, and he and Tammy Faye were divorced while he was in prison. And although Tammy Faye died in 2007... You can still find Jim Baker back at it on daytime TV, believe it or not, right now, chasing after daydreams and hastening to gain riches. He could benefit from a careful meditation on Paul's admonition to the Ephesians. When Paul wrote, the one who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, doing good with his own hands so that he may have something to share with the one who has need so that we may share with the one who has need. That's the ultimate motivation. Next, we examine our actions. Are we constructive or destructive? Now, do we build up by our actions, whether it's our work itself or people? You have the ability to build up or tear down even people. Sometimes we can be destructive through inaction. Oftentimes, not doing what we ought to do can result in destruction as we'll see. So a bus station is where a bus stops. A train station is where a train stops. What's a workstation? <laughs> yeah, uh, many people quit looking for work when they find a job, right? So Proverbs 10, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Remember our friend the grasshopper. His lazy hands certainly made for a situation in which he found himself in dire need, while the ants gathering crops had plenty of wealth to see them through the harsh winter. And Proverbs 14, 23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Now, have you ever known someone who talked a lot about their work, but it seemed as if they never really did any work? 
Or perhaps they acted like they were working, rushing here and there to the copy machine, supply closet, they're on the phone. You couldn't quite figure out what they were doing, though. Has anybody ever experienced that in the workplace? And you kind of knew it, but some, some people might say, oh, yeah, look at what a hard worker they are. But you're like, but what did they do? Someone like this? I love it. How's your degree in theater going to help you here? I can act busy. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a degree in theater if you're in the theater. Uh, so, <clears throat> sometimes, however, destructive is destructive. Proverbs 18.9 is very instructive in this area. The one who is slack in his work is a brother to one who destroys. This is implying a close relationship. There's sort of a common goal or an end theme there that the one who is slack is also destroying. Whether passively or actively, the idea that a lack of proactive work ethic and no desire to contribute effectively through our actions can be extremely destructive in the workplace. I'm sure you've seen some of these patterns and maybe even been guilty yourself of common destructive patterns in the workplace. We'll just look at a few of them here that I think make sense. You've got your competitor who must win at all costs, even at the expense of team efforts. The rebel who won't accept any authority and oftentimes actually undermines authority. You have the procrastinator who never really seems to finish anything. And the meddler who tries to do everyone else's work and not their own because they think they know everybody else's job better than they do. The dodger who avoids work and responsibility. This is the one that you'll find out in their car well after lunch break's over. The divider secretly causes conflict. Maybe sometimes not so secretly. They're the drama king or queen there in the, uh, in the workplace. So let's turn those around and look at how we can make those constructive patterns and help others to do so. So instead of a competitor, be a colleague. Instead of a rebel, be an advocate. Instead of a procrastinator, be an expediter. Get things done. Instead of a meddler, be a facilitator. Nothing wrong with helping others. Instead of dodging work, volunteer for new opportunities. That is, after all, how we grow. And instead of dividing, seek to unite and sow cohesiveness. Okay, let's look at a great example of destruction due to lack of action. Uh, Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 31, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of one who lacks wisdom. I saw that thorns had grown up all over it. The ground was covered with weeds, and its stone wall was broken down. I think this photo does an excellent job of illustrating this type of decay. I think Solomon's word picture, the ground covered with weeds, the wall broken down, speaks to so much more than laziness or a lack of production. There's actual destruction happening here. The sluggard is not only avoiding work, he has no wisdom to protect his property. Likely from thieves and animals as well as the elements, walls don't just break down on their own. It reveals a complete lack of concern. So Solomon says, when I saw this, I gave careful consideration to it. I received instruction from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to relax, and your poverty will come like a bandit, and your need like an armed robber. So this picture, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, I picture the guy in the hammock, or I picture myself sitting on my patio looking at the grass, knowing that I really need to do some trimming and mowing, 
But this idea that poverty will come like a bandit and your need like an armed robber, this implies surprise. The bandit, the robber, like, duh, you didn't think that avoiding work would result in poverty? We see it all the time, though, actually, don't we? The results of our action, are we constructive or are we destructive? So speaking of results, are our results substantive or are they hollow? Now, there are tons of resources and systems to measure productivity. We don't have time to go into all of them today, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with Six Sigma or QI or JCO or many of the, the various academic accreditation organizations. There is a methodology for every industry or discipline. Perhaps the most effective, though, is articulated in this familiar cartoon here. This week I achieved unprecedented levels of unverifiable productivity. See, it's not how good your work is, it's how well you explain it, really. Now, of course, that's not true. Although results, results can be subjective, so, so don't get me wrong. That's important to remember that not everything can be measured objectively with facts and figures. Nevertheless, let's see what Solomon has to say about results. In Proverbs 20, verse 4, he says, Sluggards do not plow in season. No work there. So at harvest time, they look but find nothing. Now, I know Easter was a few months back, but I wonder if anyone else has lingering childhood trauma from receiving a nice big chocolate bunny only to take a big bite and discover this. Seriously? Boo. Don't you hate the hollow bunny? It's like, really? I think those originated as a cruel joke and they stuck around because it cost less to make them. It's the lazy man's bunny. And yet, a sluggard's appetite is never filled. But the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Oh, yeah. If you're willing to work for it, that great big solid bunny, especially the one that you need to slice on a cutting board, can definitely fulfill your chocolate desires, right? So it is with our efforts. The more diligent you are, notice he didn't say the harder you work, Successful work isn't necessarily harder. It's effective. You may see someone who works very diligently at what they do and say, wow, you sure work hard, and they may look at you like you're nuts. People tell me I work hard. Some of you are sitting there thinking, who tells you that? <clears throat> but I love what I do, so it doesn't feel like I'm working hard. I try to be diligent. I'm certainly not always successful. I know that. We can't be all the time, but when we apply our proper motivation with constructive action, positive, substantive results should follow most of the time. While it doesn't always translate into economic gain, what happens when it does? What should those results look like? In Proverbs 21, verses 25 through 26, Solomon addresses it this way when he says, The craving of a sluggard will be the death of him, because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. The righteous give without sparing. The sluggard will have nothing to give, and he will always want more and more despite his refusal to work. On the other hand, the one who works hard and has something to show for it with the proper motivation, they will give without sparing. Andrew Carnegie was a poor immigrant from Scotland who ended up becoming one of the wealthiest people in the United States. 
Carnegie used his wealth to help improve mankind through the philanthropies he set up in scientific, educational, and cultural institutions. Some of you, have, I'm sure, are very familiar with Carnegie. Today, we still benefit from many of the philanthropic causes that he actually set up. He stated that people with riches were trustees of their wealth and had a moral obligation to distribute it so that the common man would benefit. Notice he didn't say to redistribute it. There's a direct transaction happening here between the one with wealth and the common man. As he said, I love these quotes, no man can become rich without himself enriching others, and the man who dies rich dies disgraced. Though Carnegie helped many people, he did not believe in providing something for nothing. And he was a shrewd businessman. He was quick to equip and empower those who were willing to work, but had no patience or sympathy for some who wanted what amounted to a handout. It's possible he was applying some of what he learned from his Presbyterian upbringing. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul's addressing this very issue. When he writes to the Thessalonica church, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good work. Remember Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. In his book, Work Matters, Tom Nelson makes an excellent point when he says, embedded in many of the messages playing in our minds as we work are some very distorted and unbiblical ideas about our work. That only some kinds of work have eternal value while others do not are unbiblical distortions we must confront in our own lives and in our faith communities. See, all work matters. You have a vocare, a calling from God that is not accidental. You cannot surprise God, nor can you thwart his plans. What you can do is embrace where he has you and bloom where you are planted. Trust in the most trustworthy one. Frederick Buchner is a prolific writer, theologian, and preacher, and I love what he has to say about the intersection of God's will and our unique vocare. He said, to believe that a wise and good God is in charge of things implies that there is a fit between things that need doing and the person I am meant to be. Be a producer. Pray that your motivation, your actions, and your results are as for the Lord and not for men. I have one last video that I would like to share with you, and then we'll close in prayer. Enjoy. I'm just a florist. Got a small shop, nothing special. Silly way to spend your life, I guess, fussing with a bunch of flowers. Sometimes I wish I was good at something else. I don't know, a doctor or a missionary, someone who really helps people. But I do love flowers. I've always had an act for it. 
So I do my best to make them beautiful for people. But I know flowers can't change the world. I know I don't make much of a difference. I'm just a florist. I'm just a florist. Let's pray. Lord, uh, <clears throat> we just pray to you today that we would seek your will in all that we do and apply ourselves to bring you glory. And Lord, as we prepare to take our offering this morning, Lord, we just thank you for the provisions that you've given us and uh, recognize that we are so grateful for those who call Frisco Bible home and that this offering is for them. And we thank you for those who may be visiting today. I pray that you will uh, certainly be with them as they go from here. I pray that they have been ministered to well. Lord, we just thank you for calling us to be a part of your kingdom. And may our lives truly bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.